and what we have found is it, it doesn't matter what you're growing or raising. Your soil type doesn't matter and where you're located, whether you get a lot of rain, very little rain, or you're hot or you're cold or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. These six principles and three rules work equally well in any of those situations. Welcome to the 276th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. As far as Alan Williams is concerned, one of the key shortcomings of conventional agriculture is that it doesn't take advantage of the ecosystem processes that are available to us via a healthy soil biome. Instead, We've used an industrialized, energy-intensive approach to basically pry production out of a landscape lacking little biological life. And now we're paying the price agronomically, economically, and environmentally. He says it's time to start farming in nature's image by relying on diversity and promoting the interdependency of these diverse systems as much as possible while integrating livestock into the picture via adaptive grazing. That's polar opposite of the conventional approach, which focuses on monocultures and has separated animals from the land utilizing the factory farm model. It's worth giving Williams a listen. Besides being a sixth-generation family farmer and founding partner of Grass-Fed Insights, Understanding Ag, and the Soil Health Academy, he holds a doctorate in livestock genetics. Despite his institutional credentials, Allen describes himself as a recovering academic and, in fact, feels that when it comes to regenerative agriculture and soil health, The scientific community has been behind the eight ball. It's innovative farmers who have led and continue to lead the way on farming utilizing ecological principles, he maintains. Williams has seen firsthand the positive results that can come from such an approach. He pioneered many of the early regenerative grazing protocols and forage finishing techniques and now teaches those practices and principles to farmers globally. He's consulted with more than 4,000 farmers and ranchers in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, South America, and other countries on operations ranging from a few acres to over 1 million acres. In 2022, LSP invited Dr. Williams to Minnesota to talk to farmers about ways of using soil health to bring the land back to life practically and profitably. As part of these events, we're launching a four-part podcast series featuring conversations with Alan Williams. In this installment, He talks about the principles of regenerative agriculture and the barriers that stand in the way of more farmers utilizing this system. Future episodes will describe the basic principles of implementing regenerative farming and ranching practices and will provide case study examples gathered by Williams from various regions. The last episode will dive into the latest evidence surrounding the connections between regenerative agriculture and increased nutrient content in food. Alan started our first conversation by describing the difference between regenerative and sustainable and why that difference matters. Yes, for you know many years, uh, sustainable agriculture was the buzzword, and obviously that's what everybody was, that was their goal, that was their objective, that's what many of the food companies and, and other companies you know talked about, we want to be sustainable. Uh, but if you look at the definition for sustainable, it, it means to just maintain the status quo. And what we're dealing with here is an, uh, an already degraded system. You know, our, our soils are degraded, our ecosystems are degraded. So 
why would we want to sustain that? You know, that that's not something we want to just be happy with. And and so what we found is that we've got to actually, you know, go above and beyond that. And in in doing that, we call that regenerative agriculture. We define regenerative agriculture like this. We we call it farming and ranching in synchrony with nature to repair, rebuild, revitalize, and restore ecosystem functions, starting with life beneath the soil and expanding to life above. Uh, so it's really all-encompassing. It's something that we have found that more and more people are becoming highly interested in. We are absolutely flooded uh, every day now with inquiries about regenerative agriculture and how do I do this? How do I effectively implement and profitably implement to the point that in the U.S. now we're, we're working across about 30 million acres that are under a regenerative transition. And globally, we've worked with people in about 34 different countries. So this is not just something that is gaining significant traction here in the U.S., but it's actually gaining traction globally. I mean, how many years ago did we start to see the regenerative movement start and kind of what spawned that? I, I mean, we've been through, there's the soil conservation movement, there's the organic movement, you know, different movements, and some are still around, some are not still around. But what what spawned this? What was it? Because there anything we can trace that to? I, I think there are several things. Um, you know, one is certainly triggered by uh, Alan Savory and, and holistic management. Uh, so there were people that were looking at that and, you know, how do we implement holistic management? And then there were others that gradually began to understand that, hey, this sustainable thing hasn't really moved the needle at all. It hasn't changed things much for us, either from a productivity standpoint or a net profitability standpoint. There's got to be something better out there that, that can help us more than this sustainable deal. Of course, then the NRCS you know, came out with uh, their original principles of soil health. And then we had a number of what I'll call uh, regenerative agriculture gurus that became very pivotal in generating interest in this whole sector. One of those is certainly Gabe Brown. Uh, another is uh, David Brandt in Ohio. Uh, we had Greg Judy down in Missouri, and, and I could go on and on. The list is really long, but but we have a number of people that they themselves have been pivotal at helping others understand and become interested in this whole sector of regenerative ag. And it, it seems like maybe the science started to catch up a little bit, too, in that soil science really advanced by leaps and bounds, and we realized we are not stuck with that degraded uh, form of soil that maybe we've been trying to farm for so many years that there are some improvements we can make to it. So it seemed like just as the farmers and ranchers were advancing, the, far the, the scientists were able to say, yeah, what you're seeing on the land, I can kind of explain a little bit what's going on here. Did that seem to be one of the drivers of that? Initially, it was not. And, and I'm a scientist myself. I, mm -hmm. I spent 15 years uh, you know, as a researcher and a professor at land grant universities, and uh, and initially, what we saw was that science actually was way behind on this, and was still thinking more the sustainable track. 
Mm-hmm. And so it, it took science a little while to start catching up. And, and to be honest with you, science is still somewhat behind in this. But you're, you're right in that we have seen more and more scientists that have said, wow, what we thought you know, about it taking hundreds or even thousands of years to add a percent of soil organic matter and things like that is not true. We can actually rebuild this a lot faster than we ever imagined and ever envisioned. And, and so scientists now are starting to come on board and to do some very viable research in this regard. So take us through what some of the, you've seen a lot of, been a lot of farms and ranches, like you said, in other countries, as well as here in this country. What are some of the, I'm sure they vary a lot, but what are some of the common characteristics we see of what we would call a regenerative type operation? The common threads on regenerative farms and ranches, both here in the U.S. and in any other country, are that they are applying diligently what we call the six principles of soil health and the three rules of adaptive stewardship to specifically optimize the four ecosystem processes. As you're well aware, and any farmer today is well aware, the input cost of all or, or the prices of almost any input that we want to purchase has increased dramatically. Uh, it, that it doesn't matter whether you're talking about fertilizer, you're talking about chemicals, you're talking about fuel, equipment, you know, parts, on and on and on, just name it. And so everybody is under this significant price crunch that we're facing. But there are four things that are free to us every single day that Mother Nature provides. And what we want to do is we want to be able to optimize our ability to be able to take advantage of those. And those are the four ecosystem processes that are comprised of the water cycle, the mineral cycle, the energy cycle, talking about photosynthetic energy, and what we call community dynamics or biological succession. So Mother Nature provides all of those. They're free. We just need to capture them. And and the very best way to do that effectively and efficiently is implementation of the six principles of soil health and the three rules of adaptive stewardship. And are these operations, they vary quite a bit by what enterprises they're using to kind of use those principles, I I figure. Can you give us some examples of what kind of enterprises we're talking about? Yes, we're talking about uh, farms of all types. You know, we've got a lot of row crop farmers who are implementing the six principles and the three rules. We've got a lot of livestock farmers, you know, whether it's cow-calf or stocker operators or other species of livestock that are doing this, as well as uh, we're working with vegetable farmers, uh, fruit growers, uh, a lot of orchards and groves from citrus to walnut to almond to pecan to apple, you know, you name it practically every type of agriculture we've been able to work with and in pretty much every type of environment, hot, cold, wet, dry. And what we have found is it it doesn't matter what you're growing or raising, your soil type doesn't matter, and where you're located, whether you get a lot of rain, very little rain, or you're hot or you're cold or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. These six principles and three rules work equally well in any 
of those situations. And oftentimes what we're seeing now with our regenerative farmers is that they have discovered that they can actually have multiple enterprises annually on the majority of their acres. So instead of being trapped in the mindset that I can only grow or raise one thing on any given acre annually, they're now understanding that, hey, I can have three, four, five revenue streams per acre every year. And that has made a significant difference, not just in their net profitability and revenue stream, but the combining of multiple enterprises within the principles of soil health and the rules of adaptive stewardship has also greatly sped up the regenerative progress that they're making. And and that, I think what's interesting about that is it, it seems to go completely opposite of the conventional model where you specialize, particularly with a monocrop operation here in Minnesota, corn and beans, you know, type of specialization. There's some good thinking behind that in that the kind of conventional wisdom was, well, I don't want anything competing with those plants. Uh, But it, it sounds like with regenerative practices, you're really trying to take advantage of the, the, the benefits of diversity that, that, and, and kind of countering that idea that uh, the more species out there, the more they're going to compete with each other, that somehow they're working together a little bit to, to kind of uh, advance the, the whole of the operation. Is that kind of the idea? Absolutely. In nature, there's no such thing as a monoculture anywhere and of anything. You know, nature always creates and and facilitates incredible abundance, diversity, and complexity. And that's not just in plant life, but in soil, microbial life, insects, birds, you know, wildlife, you name it. So so everywhere that nature is in control, we we see abundance, complexity, and diversity. Therefore, they're all all of those species are working together symbiotically and are not robbing each other. And somehow we develop this concept that if we have more than one plant growing in a year or whatever in the soil, that we actually are, like you said, we're we're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You know, one crop is robbing from another. And if you do this well, it's actually just the opposite, exactly the opposite. You are building ability to infiltrate water and store water for all of those crops. You're building organic matter, building carbon, which of course feeds all the crops. You're building the the soil microbial capacity to be able to reach down and grab those nutrients and feed them to a multiplicity of plants. So the concept that we've had for the last several decades of specialization in monocultures is by far the very best way to go. We're actually proving that to be quite erroneous. And by the way, we have realized a lot of unintended consequences from that that type of agriculture. You know, we've seen steady continued degrading of the soil, loss of soil organic matter and carbon and erosion and runoff and all of these other things. And not improvements. We are not improving through that that method of agriculture at all. Now, what this doesn't mean is that you cannot have a monoculture of corn or soybeans or wheat. Yes, you can. Mm -hmm. But 
what we can do is we can go in after harvest or even interseeding and plant a complex, diverse cover crop. And then we can even graze that cover crop with either one species of livestock during the fall, winter, and early spring, or we can even graze it with multiple species of livestock. So now I've applied a lot of biology, diversity, I've built soil organic matter and carbon and water infiltration capacity, and I have established multiple revenue streams off of the same acre. We actually have quite a few farmers that we're working with that are generating as much or more net per acre annually off of the winter grazing as they did off of the monoculture cash crop that they grew that prior summer. And I know we're in a, in future installments of this, this series, we're going to look at some specific examples. You're going to describe some specific examples of operations you've been on, but can you just give us a snippet of a operation you've seen that does a really good job of using this symbiosis and, and biodiversity and kind of uh, to, to give folks kind of paint a little bit of a picture of what this might look like on an operation. Absolutely. Uh, I can give you actually hundreds of examples, uh, but uh, I'll start with uh, one of my partners, Gabe Brown, you know, is certainly a major example of being able to do this and do it extremely well. And for those that don't know Gabe's story and are interested in learning more. He has a book called Dirt to Soil, uh, so they can learn about Gabe's story and how how he's doing this. Uh, but another one that I'll give you that many may not have heard about is uh, Adam Grady uh, in in the state of North Carolina. And uh, Adam was a very conventional farmer, and he and his father heard about regenerative ag and talked to us about it, and then transitioned in 2016 to regenerative agriculture. They were planting monoculture, cash crops, corn, soybeans, tobacco, things like that. No cover crops and no grazing, obviously, of cover crops uh, in between the cash crops. So they were doing the full tillage in the fall after harvest and, you know, the whole, the whole gamut, as you would imagine. But they, they transitioned in 2016, planted their first cover crop then, and by 2018, in just two years, Adam had made significant progress to the point that on the 1,200 acres that he farms, he had saved $200,000 in input cost by year two of his second full year of regenerative agriculture. But also in that year, they had a major hurricane, Hurricane Florence. That hurricane dumped eight to nine foot of floodwaters across their entire farm and the whole region that he lives in. And so it, he had been able to harvest his corn crop ahead of that, but it killed his soybean crop and of course devastated his pastures. But just two weeks after the floodwaters receded, Adam was able to get into his fields. They, they were so resilient and the biology was so resilient. He was able to get his tractors and no-till drills back into his fields and plant a diverse cover crop. His neighbor saw him doing this, tried to get into his field with his tractors, and his tractor sunk up to the axles. So Adam developed in just two years incredible resilience. It allowed him to be able to actually have grazing through the winter by planting that cover crop for his livestock and 
all of his neighbors had no grazing whatsoever. They were relying on stored feedstuffs all winter for their livestock. The very next year in 2019, just his third full year of regenerative agriculture, Adam was able to pay off his debt uh, on his farm and, uh, and even purchase another farm after that. So he's a perfect example of someone that has made significant progress. He now has multiple enterprises. Adam, Adam not only does the row crops and cover crops, they also have cow-calf and grass finishing operation. They have a pastured pig operation and pastured sheep and poultry operations. So he has integrated all of these other enterprises into their farm. That's a really good example. And it brings to mind another question I have, which is I know you have a lot of experience with grazing and grass-based agriculture and adaptive grazing specifically. Is regenerative agriculture, is that something that can be done without livestock as part of the picture? So the short answer is yes, it is. Now, you know, out of the six principles of soil health, the sixth one is integration of livestock through adaptive Mm -hmm. grazing. But if you can't, you know, if you're not set up for livestock or you just simply don't want livestock, then yes, you can make progress with soil health and regenerative agriculture by implementing the other five principles. David Brandt in Ohio is a really good example of that. David has only very recently started integrating livestock, but for 30 years, he implemented the other five principles and made quite tremendous progress. So, so yes, it's very possible, but what it does mean is that you've got to be really, really cognizant of those other five principles. You really do have to minimize your soil disturbance, keep it covered, living roots in the soil year round, and you've got to have diversity in your cover crops. You can't just plant monoculture covers after a monoculture cash crop and expect to make significant progress. Not going to happen. So diversity is one of the keys here, coupled with that minimizing of soil disturbance. When you combine them both, you really get much better results. Yeah. And I I know one thing we see here in Minnesota is the farmers who have the most, at least short-term success, kind of immediate success with cover crops and are able to make them pay off in the near term is are the ones who have livestock who can add value to them through grazing, that type of thing. Absolutely. Livestock really speed things up significantly. Even if you don't want livestock, you know, there's other ways to get the livestock impact on your ground. You can work with neighbors that have livestock that will be delighted to have extra grazing, you know, during certain periods of the year. And we've done a lot of that, helping to match up farmers with grazers uh, you know, and, and it can work quite well. What are some, this is really, you know, it's always, I get so excited talking about regenerative ag and some of these examples out there and reading about some of these folks that are doing it and seeing the YouTube videos and all that. And I go to a lot of workshops where farmers will talk about it, but there must be some barriers or everybody be doing it. <laughs> what, what are some of those barriers that you're seeing out there? We've been doing this for quite a while now, almost three decades. And and we have clearly identified what we call the top three barriers to adoption. These are repeated over and over again, and even uh, all over the world. So it really doesn't matter whether you're sitting there in Minnesota or Iowa, 
or down here in Mississippi, or you're over in the UK or Australia or someplace like that, these barriers to adoption are the same. First is just a simple lack of awareness and education. You can't implement what you do not know. Mm-hmm. And just because you've heard of regenerative agriculture or the six principles or the three rules or whatever, doesn't mean that you have enough familiarity with them to be able to properly implement. So the first thing you need to do is to take care of that. You know, if you don't know about something, then educate yourself. But that's the first barrier, lack of awareness or education. The second and, and this can be tough a lot of times to get over is peer pressure. And this peer pressure can come from members of your own family. We've seen that over and over where, you know, some family members say, yes, I, I definitely want to try this regenerative agriculture. And others are looking at them like, are you nuts? No, we're not going to do that. That is too common, to be honest with you. And then other peer pressure also comes from your neighbors you know, other farmers that look at you cross-eyed and say, why, why in the world are you thinking about that? Your friends. It can come, unfortunately, from our university faculty, from extension personnel, from vendors, everybody that sells you stuff, because sometimes they can feel threatened. The salespeople may think that, well, if they transition to this regenerative ag, they're not going to buy as much from me. And and so they're going to put peer pressure on you. And even ag lenders, because many ag lenders, unfortunately, do not yet understand regenerative agriculture and they haven't availed themselves of, you know, the financials and the, you know, the enterprise budgets that are available for regenerative agriculture, they're the only enterprise budgets they're used to and have seen are the typical university enterprise budgets or FinBen data, something like that. So the peer pressure comes from all of those entities. And the way that we solve that is first through educating, because if you, if you don't get that education, then you're going to succumb much more quickly to the peer pressure. Mm-hmm. But the other thing we do is we help establish a new network of support. Everybody's got to have somebody they can go to, especially if everybody else is telling them you're nuts for doing this. You've got to have somebody else you can go to that that is supporting you and is going through this as well. So we we establish a farmer-to-farmer network, peer groups that they can work with each other. And then the third barrier is farm debt load. And this is a significant barrier as well. And unfortunately, the vast majority of farmers today are carrying a pretty heavy debt load. As a matter of fact, it's the greatest it's ever been. Most farmers require, they don't just have their their CapEx loans and all of that, but they're requiring annual operating loans. They can't even cash flow, feed, seed, fertilizer, fuel, those types of things. And many are even wrapping up their personal living expenses in their annual operating loans. So the fear that they have because they're on that razor's edge keeps them from making good decisions. They're so afraid to change anything they're doing, even though what they're doing is exactly what got them in the position on that debt load. They're afraid that if they do anything different, they're going to lose the farm. So those are the top three, lack of education, peer pressure, 
and debt load. And I wonder too, if you're going to go to the extra trouble of doing this, you know, eventually it's going to be lower input costs and all that and and kind of really pencil out nicely. But initially you're not getting rewarded in the marketplace for that, for taking that extra trouble, at least not in a consistent basis. What we have seen is that just on input cost reduction alone, coupled with understanding the things you no longer need, Mm -hmm. uh, like there's equipment that you no longer need, you know, and things like that, that you're able to sell to to generate some cash flow and reduction in the input cost. As I mentioned earlier, oftentimes in year one, year two, year three, frankly, that's enough to help you with this. And you don't necessarily need the enhanced markets, Hmm. but we absolutely help them with developing better market opportunities as well as they move forward. And I'll use Adam Grady again as a perfect example. In 2018, you know, just his second year of regenerative ag, uh, Adam switched to all non-GM crops. So he didn't plant any traded seed that year at all. It was all conventional seed. And by the way, it was also untreated seed. So he didn't plant anything that had neonics on it. And his crops grew very well. He had no issue. He had, as a matter of fact, he had higher yields than his neighbors that were planting treated seed and was traded, you know, GM seed. And Adam, we helped him and and he was able to secure markets for the non-GM seed crops, corn and beans. Uh, on his corn, he made another dollar fifty a bushel by selling it into markets that were looking for non-GM products. We talked about the barriers, but you've worked with so many farmers and ranchers all over the world. What are some a couple of the number one couple of the top reasons that they are interested in making this change? Because it is a it's a change in mindset. And uh, it's it's an ability, it's a willingness to really put your push yourself out there a little bit, and like you said, go against what your neighbors and your, go against that peer pressure. But what are some of the? I'm just always fascinated by people who are willing to kind of step out of that mainstream a little bit. One one of the first things, one of the first reasons is that they have realized that they are in a financial pickle. They may not be about to lose the farm but they realize that their debt load is way too high and they've been losing real equity. And so they're highly interested in in being able to make a transition that makes sense to them to be able to significantly reduce that debt load and improve equity for the next generation coming mm-hmm. onto the farm. They, Most of the people that we talk to, one of the first things they say to us is, I don't want to be the generation that loses the farm. I want to make sure that that we keep it and that we hand it over to the next generation better than it is today. Mm -hmm. So it is that financial position and that lack of net profit and and that debt load that is one of the major incentives for them to start down this path. But another is that, to be honest with you, they have noticed that their their soils are not getting better, that they're more degraded than they've been and are requiring higher and higher levels of input just to maintain the same level of productivity. They're noticing more erosion, more runoff, and that they have far less 
wildlife and bird species and insect species than what they used to have when they were growing up. That concerns them. They actually, they, they want to be an ecological steward uh, of their farms. And, and when they start to see, you know, the lack of this diversity and, and ecosystem deterioration, they really, they really are concerned about that and they care about that and, and they want to be good stewards. And so, you know, they're looking for a way to be able to effectively steward that land in, in, in a far better manner. So that would certainly be another thing that another reason that a lot of people come to us in, in, in what we hear. And then a third big reason is that they're trying to get out of the uh the vicious cycle of commodity agriculture, you know, to be quite honest with you, they, mm. they know that they're a price taker instead of a price maker. They would really love to be able to, to have a little more control over what they're doing and the products they're producing and the markets that they're selling them into. And so they're looking for those enhanced market opportunities and they understand that regenerative agriculture is the thing that's going to give them that opportunity. So what I would like to say is, you know, in, in our next podcast, uh, in our next segment, I want to dive into, you know, these six principles and the three rules and how can we effectively and efficiently implement them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's really, really important. And then, then we'll move on from there to actual real life case studies. And then finally, to talking about how does this impact nutrient density of food. But I want to leave everyone today with this quote. It's a quote from W.C. Loudermilk in Conquest of the Land Through 7,000 Years. And Loudermilk says that the land does not lie. It bears a record of what men write on it, a record that is easy to read by those who understand the simple language of the land. So in essence, what we do, our stewardship, our management is written on the tapestry of the land. During our conversation, Dr. Williams referred to the six principles of soil health that guide understanding ag's work with farmers and ranchers. As a reminder, those six principles are know your context, Do not disturb, cover and build surface armor, mix it up, keep living roots in the soil, and finally, grow healthy animals and soil together. As Alan mentioned, the next episode in this series will feature a discussion about the three rules of adaptive stewardship that he adheres to when promoting regenerative practices. As we're recording this series, Williams is scheduled to be in southeastern Minnesota for a set of Land Stewardship Project Field Days August 17th and 18th, 2022. For details on those events and resources related to Alan's work, see the links on the podcast page for episode number 276 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, 
Visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.